2: It's Celtic couldn't handle
0: the set piece. It's a brilliant header. And Kyle goes for second.
1: What about that? What about that? Here's Aloisi from place in the World for us. Yes! Australia, done it. You're with Shim, Spider, and so much more. Take it away, fellas.
0: Yes, hello again. Good to have your company for the weekly edition of Shim, Spider and so much more. A week when the clubs seem to bypass the PFA in their negotiations with the players over pay cuts. The Newcastle Jets and Central Coast Mariners set for new owners. While overseas, the English Premier League battles with the coronavirus spike. Manchester City get hammered by Leicester. Hmm. We are socially distancing here on the podcast too. We're taking no chances with me in Sydney, Zelko Kalats in Greece, and Craig Moore in Scotland. We reckon we've got the one and a half meter thing well and truly covered. Good to see you, boys. How are you?
2: Good morning, or should I say good afternoon, or whatever time it is. Hello, everyone. Yeah, good morning, good afternoon, good evening.
0: Yes, I don't think any of us know what time it is in the various (laughs) parts of the world that we are. Um, Let's uh, just kick things off. Uh, The CBA, Maury, we've covered this quite extensively over the last couple of weeks, but is bypassing the PFA becoming pretty much the only option now for clubs and players and trying to sort out deals individually? Uh, I know Perth, of course, have carried through on their threat of standing players down as well, James Johnson, sort of waiting on the outside in the wings, ready to go if necessary. What's your take on all this?
3: Yeah, look, it's a it's a really tough situation. We've kind of touched on it um, in a couple of, of our podcasts. Um, look, whether or not the clubs obviously feel that um, bypassing the PFA is a way forward for them. Uh, look, it's a tough time, Simon, for for everybody, and uh, clubs are trying to take I guess, I guess control. Of their financial situation, with, with still all of the the uncertainty, a lot a lot still to play out here. I just hope we can get to um, a really quick resolution um, for the players, for the clubs. So, I mean, financially, everybody is hurting. We we also know that the pain that they're experiencing here in the lower leagues, uh, the, the EFL uh, here in England. Uh, so tough times for football, but CBA in terms of protection of players uh, is is obviously the. The best way forward, but they seem a long way off that, don't
0: they? Indeed. Yep. Um, Spider Zante, your club, uh, you're raiding right the A League, mate. It's in Josh Bralante Callan Elliott, it's becoming a, an Australian Zante
2: FC. Oh, you forgot Matt German arrived Saturday night. Oh, as yes. Well.
0: Sorry, forgot Matty. Yeah,
2: That's Matt, all. Matt, Matty German arrived Saturday night. Uh, we did try Paul Izzo, but it just didn't happen. Still not happening, Spuds? Uh, nah, it didn't happen, mate. Uh, we we tried our hardest. To be fair, the owner and the people in charge, they they really pushed for it, but we just couldn't get it across the line. So that was that was unlucky. But yeah, we're, we're still looking. Uh, we're not. We're not. We haven't stopped yet. We're still looking.
0: <laughs> okay, it's going to become like a, a little barley, isn't it? It's in in Zante, all those Aussies uh, clustered around the pool and the beach. Uh, let's get into it then and we'll kick off with Simon says.
1: Simon says.
0: Well Football Queensland this week released its strategic infrastructure plan for the next four years after a statewide consultation process. that surprise surprise reveal the game of football suffers from a lack of investment. FQ's paper outlines three priorities in terms of infrastructure in particular. Firstly, a home of women's football and centre of excellence in Queensland. Secondly, regional high-performance centres. And thirdly, a boutique stadium of 15,000 with three potential sites. These developments are obviously to be applauded, as is the news on Friday that more than a dozen clubs in the state have been approved for over $350,000 worth of funding to upgrade their facilities. The hosting of the FIFA Women's World Cup in 2023 accelerates these opportunities for the game, and it's long overdue. Yet what still concerns me is the language used in the release, specifically this with regards to the boutique stadium. The proposed stadium would provide a high-performance facility for football matches and other sporting codes, featuring a new pitch designed for multi-purpose use. Similarly, Tasmania is hoping the Women's World Cup acts as a catalyst for investment into York Park in Launceston. But the initial proposal is for the capability of bringing seats in to convert the current oval into a rectangle temporarily, a.k.a. Marvel Stadium in Melbourne. No. Please, no. At the moment, 13 stadiums are listed as host venues for the 2023 World Cup. You know who they all are? Out of all the stadiums, though only one could be said to be a pure football venue, Cooper's Stadium in Adelaide. The rest of the usual mix of league, union, AFL, cricket and football, and we know where we normally sit in the pecking order when it comes to those sports, when it comes to stadium deals and pitch quality, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But this is a World Cup in Australia, a football World Cup. Football is the sport that is delivering the global stage, those global dollars, And I think what most football people want is a real legacy for our sport from that event. That's not to say other sports shouldn't be played at those venues, but we have to learn from history and this time be fully in charge. My journalistic colleague, Sebastian Hassett, recently wrote a very telling article regarding the 2000 Olympics and how the Gabba, which hosted seven football games as part of the Sydney Games, used the presence of our sport to drive upgrades. Upgrades which have since benefited almost every sport, bar football. Hastat pointed out that out of the $6.9 billion spent on Olympic infrastructure, the only money that came football's way was the $30 million upgrade of Highmarsh, and that the tenant clubs Adelaide City and West Adelaide were even initially asked to help cover construction costs by way of a ticket levy. 15 years later, 20 times that amount was used to upgrade Adelaide Oval. Back in Queensland, Brisbane Roar, who, to be fair, have a $9 million council-owned training facility in Logan, are reportedly now having talks with the Gold Coast Suns to move their training base to Carrara, a facility developed to the tune of $144 million for the AFL team. Meanwhile, check out the different language used when it comes to rugby league in New South Wales. Just last month, New South Wales Deputy Premier, John Barilaro offered his government support for five new boutique stadiums. Here's his quote. The government has an appetite for the ground renewal program that the NRL has put forward. If we do three, four or five more Bank Wests, well, that's got to be great for the game long term. Great for the community and great for that competition. Which game? Which community? Which competition? Not ours, clearly. And while there's no doubt football would get some benefit from investment in boutique stadiums in New South Wales and Queensland, I'd urge the game's leaders to follow the NRL and AFL's lead in being much more aggressive in pushing our case. We're the biggest participation sport in the country. We have a sport that has been historically chronically underfunded. We have few true homes and we have a football World Cup coming here in three years time. If there's money going spare for infrastructure, then no disrespect but it shouldn't be for AFL or for NRL or for cricket. They've had plenty down the years, or even for men or women or sport in general. It should be for football. If we don't fight harder this time, then I fully expect in 10 years' time, I'll be walking around some plush facility in Brisbane, which should have been for football, but will have miraculously turned into yet another stadium for another sport. And let's not forget what's happened too to two of our most historic football stadiums in this country, Middle Park in Melbourne, is now a pit lane for the Australian Grand Prix, while St George Stadium in Sydney lies derelict and unloved. Please don't let it happen again. This time, it's got to be football first. Let's move on to Hard Talk.
1: Hard Talk.
0: Hard Talk is brought to you by Streamgate, which has been live streaming since 2008, specialising in custom built stream pages, pay per view and multi-language streaming. They can cater to large online conferences with multiple simultaneous streams and destinations, including all social media channels servicing clients Australia-wide. Go to streamgate.com.au or find them on Instagram. Well, more inspired news this week that uh, both the Newcastle Jets and the Central Coast Mariners are pretty close to being sold. Now, the rumor was The jets were going to be bought out by a company called Sky Jade, which uh, is a company based down in Melbourne. My understanding is that that is uh, far from being certain that there is interest elsewhere. Uh, Meantime, the Mariners look like they're going to be sold to Sydney-based investor and technology businessman Abdul Halu, who wants to keep them in Gosford and who also has a stake in Rayo Vallecano over in Spain. What do you make of these developments with regards to our two regional clubs?
2: For me, very positive on both sides. I mean, at the end of the day, we've spoken about it. Uh, if we have good investors that are willing to continue and take over the clubs and help sort this problem out that we're in, that's only good for the game.
3: Maury? Yeah, no, yeah no, I'm saying, look, we're desperate for investment in the game. We need investment in the game, so... Look, not saying that you take anybody's dollars. Governance, due diligence is very, very important. But I think it's exciting that we do have people out there that want to invest in our game, Simon. When it comes
0: to due diligence, boys, I don't know if you know the answer to this question. Who does that? Is that James Johnson or Chris Nicku or the the boards? Who does that investigative work?
3: Look it, it should be it should be all of the above uh, that you've mentioned. Uh, you know what, what, what I think is a way forward in terms of the, the, the due diligence is um, really really digging deep into the, the background of the people, previous businesses, uh, certainly um, what that looks like over the previous five years. And I think that not only in Australia but worldwide now, I think some form when you're getting investors to come into the game. I think there should be uh, some money put aside, also in a trust or or, or, a, or a fund, in terms of um, you know when the game if it hits financial stress and they're unable to 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 meet their their financial responsibilities that there's that 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 trust there that can buy them out of trouble, so to speak. Um, I think that's important as well because something like covid nobody's seen it coming but we look we look at it now and we look how much it's hurting our game spider
0: yeah. can i ask you about whether we perhaps need clarity as well when it comes to our owners because after all football clubs you know they're part of the community they the owners are basically just uh, in in charge of the club, in trust for future generations, aren't they? And I I ask this question because there is this strange tale this week down in Adelaide about the Reds being sued to the tune of $1.7 million in a dispute involving their former owners, uh, particularly uh, Bruno Marveggio, who's since been uh, declared bankrupt. Um, There's an article in the Adelaide Advertiser this week with uh, journalist Michael Maguire asking again for clarification around who exactly the Reds' owners... Are outside Pete Vanderpol. We,
2: we yeah, well, I, I think. Well, I think uh, worldwide, you pretty much who the owners are of the clubs. I mean, the big clubs in Australia, we all know. Mate, it's funny you bring that up, Simon. It's one club I actually don't know who owns Adelaide. I've actually never, never known who owns them. I knew they had some sort of group of people, but I didn't know where they come from and what they were doing and what their businesses were. So yeah, I think clarity would be good. As for the other clubs, I think it's quite clear who owns which clubs in Australia.
0: Well, Pete van der Poel, obviously, we, we do know down at Adelaide, but uh, he remains uh, the only uh, person that is publicly uh, out there as, as uh, the owner, or at least part of uh, the, the, the club ownership structure. Um, let's move away from club ownership and uh, move on to the player, Mary Go Round, which uh, continues Maury in the A-League. Uh, Andrew Naboot leaves Perth without ever kicking a ball for them and signed on for Melbourne City. Uh, he was playing for their big rivals, Melbourne Victory, of course, last season. James yeah. Donaghy has gone to India uh, just weeks after signing for the Jets. I'm not even sure they officially even ever announced him. It's tricky for, for fans, isn't it, to, to build attachments to these players when they appear to move on so quickly and and so frequently.
3: Well, especially now with, with, with everything that's happening, Simon. I mean, we're, we're seeing some some really strange movement. Um, You know, I was aware of of Donks uh, going to to Newcastle and then heard the news about him then uh, going to India. And then I seen Newcastle follow up with that maybe a day or two after about it being a loan deal. But the challenges, obviously what we have for for the Australian players is the downtime now, Simon. Uh, You've got to remember, these are football players that are desperate to be involved and playing football. And, because there's still that uncertainty of when we start. Uh, so for Newcastle, financially, it made, made sense probably to have a player getting games under his belt with donks with some uh, in India with the view to coming back. But you're going to continue to see this kind of movement between players and, and clubs and um, where they end up and when we start and where that sits is, is all very interesting times ahead.
2: Yeah, but Maury, you know, you don't blame the players, do you? Like, I mean, the reality so, is... They, they, they actually might not play football for another six or seven months. That's not a professional footballer.
3: No, and you, know yourself,
2: you know yourself, when you, have, when you have time off at the end of the season in Europe or South America, within four weeks, you're back in training. Now we're saying to these guys, okay, go into our hubs, spend the last two months playing this hub. we finished the yeah. season. Now, we're not going to play for six or seven months and not give these guys the opportunity to grow and go elsewhere and play. It's normal that they're chasing opportunity. And there'll be more of them that'll leave, I'm sure of it, Maury.
3: Mate, 100%. They're professional footballers, Spiders. They, they want to play football. That's that's what they're there to do. Uh, look, the difficulty is for the clubs, and I'm having some conversations with the Australian clubs, is, is just still, unfortunately, that uncertainty. You know, Everybody kind of has got a, an idea, potentially, what the next nine months is going to look like. But after the broadcast deal runs out, Spider, and what... Next season looks like, mate, nobody knows what's happening. That uncertainty is is, is not good for the game. Uh, and therefore, players are going to explore other opportunities.
2: Yep.
0: It is a very uh, worrying situation for everybody concerned with football in Australia. Let's talk about some uh, brighter news. Uh, three or four pieces of this week. In fact, first of all, good to see Nike and the FFA have found a way to make the Matildas away jersey available in a female cut after those uh, hours of protest. Quite how that uh, managed to slip through in the first place is beyond me. Um, Aiden Rustic has joined Matt Leckie in the Bundesliga after signing for yeah. uh, Eintracht Frankfurt, which is great to see. Um, and I want to ask you, uh, Maury, about Nikita Rukovic, somewhat the, the forgotten man of of the mm. Socceroos, he hasn't played for the national team since 2018. He scored seven and five uh, for his club yep. side Maccabi Haifa in Israel, uh, and his goal has booked a Europa League playoff against uh, uh, Tottenham. Maybe Greening all this not far away.
3: I think I've also seen some uh, quotes recently from the assistant coach Rene Mullerstein, um for the national team, saying that he is a different type of player and that, that maybe we don't have in the national team. I think Nikita may be about 32, 33 years of age, uh, Simon, but um, he's, he's well-liked and well-loved in, in Israel. He's scoring goals. He's doing it on a regular basis. Um, he has pace. Um, obviously, in Australia, we've seen him more as, as a winger, but certainly in Europe, he's been predominantly played through the middle. Um, he's, having a, he's having a great run, um, as did we see also Adam Taggart with a hat-trick over the weekend. Uh, amongst the goals again. So, it's good to see that uh, outside of Australia, we do have our Australian players that are uh, cracking on with their careers and doing well. But Nikita Rukovica should be in the, the thoughts, certainly, of the national team.
0: Whenever the national team gets to play a game again, of course. Um, yeah. Spider, on, just on Adam Taggart, uh, Maury mentioned he scored that hat-trick for Suwon. Uh, big relegation battle at the weekend. They're battling against the drop, the Blue Wings. Um, Taggart is reported as saying that he... He thinks it's time to leave the club. He wants to to take the next step up on his his career, which is probably understandable. Where's the best fit for uh, an inform Adam Taggart? Is it, is it Europe? Is it elsewhere yeah. in Asia? What what sort of level? What sort of?
2: Cause oh, FC would be fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> <Another one. laughs> you can't but afford him, like- son. <laughs> I thought I just drop that one. You know what I mean. Uh, look, I've always thought of Taggart as a very good goal scorer. Uh, you know, a little bit like Rukovica at the moment. He's probably found a great level for him. Like, he was a bit of a journeyman. Tags was a bit the same. And they find their sort of level and they find happiness in scoring goals. I don't care where you are, but as a striker, if you're scoring goals, mate, you're happy. What level is Taggart at? Uh, look, I'd love to see him come to Europe. uh oh. Mate, he's a good striker and strikers are hard to find anywhere more. You know that. It doesn't matter the which which league.
3: Yeah, the issue is going to be Spides, right? Tags is on decent money where he is, right? So, yeah. the club are going to, going to, going to certainly want to recoup some kind of money on the player. So, it might not be a heavy transfer, but it'll be a, still a decent-sized transfer. Um, and his salary. So, that that is going to be what dictates where... Tagger ends up to is he a premiership player probably not so all of a sudden you start to I guess you can rule out places where he, he won't end up and I, I kind of feel that it probably leaves him in Asia Spides. it probably leaves yeah. him in Asia to earn good money but what that looks like I don't know what I do know is tags is a goal scorer I've, I've thought that all along his biggest challenge was going to be physically what that regime looked like in Korea he's come through that mate in, in, with flying colours, so it'll be a good investment for any any football club in Asia, I believe. Turkey, maybe, possibly, that kind uh, of countries. Yeah.
0: Okay. Interesting. We'll see where uh, Adam Taggart ends up. Let's hope he continues to bang the goals in. Uh, Wellington Phoenix said to be considering establishing a W League team and basing it in Wollongong. Yeah. Is that good for for our women's competition? And do we know what's happening with the the Phoenix license? Has it been extended or we're we still waiting on that? There's an awful well, lot of... I, unknown don't, I, don't think
2: we know, I don't think we know anything. But you know what? One one thing I will give to Wellington Phoenix, it's good that they want to bring in a women's team now. Yeah. Will, uh, will it eventually? Will they be allowed to? I, I don't know. But it's another 25 positions of professional-type football for these girls. And I think it's fantastic. Yeah,
3: I think, look... I. So I, mean, I think Wellington Phoenix are at least being proactive, aren't they? I mean, we, we've got a, a Women's World Cup in, in, in 2023. Um, they're obviously looking and, and are having discussions with Wollongong because potentially they will, they'll need to come back next season for, for a hump scenario, which um, will be in New South Wales. Um, but again, like, can we not or should we not be talking about the, the expansion of Australian uh, potential teams also? Um and again, not not being disrespectful uh, disrespectful to Wellington Phoenix, I think they've been fan, uh, fantastic. They've been proactive, uh, and Women's
2: World Cup. We just got to keep
3: on growing.
2: Have the Kiwi girls uh, qualified for Women's World Cup? Just a quick question.
3: Well, not normally when you when you host a World Cup, you automatically qualify.
2: Yeah, so that's why they want to join in now for their own interests. <laughs> well, once once again, come on, man.
0: Um, Just a final one, and sticking with the women's game before we move overseas, uh, the Matildas coach identity is still unknown. We believe the race is down to two with uh, Carolina Morazze, who we talked about last week, I think, the Italian coach, uh, and Tony Gustafsson, the former American women's national team assistant coach. Uh, They've got a training camp coming up in November, so you'd imagine that they'd they'd want a new coach in situ by then. Very interesting story on FTBL uh, in the last 24 hours. A couple of former Matildas have spoken out, saying that the current crop of players must accept whichever coach is chosen. And that sort of hints at a player power issue within the Matildas. They have gone through a fair few coaches over the last uh, few years. What's your take on all that, Maury?
3: I like um, I like that, um, again, I, I didn't read that story of Simon, but I like I, I did read a couple of other stories in terms of um, both candidates and the way that the story was presented. And you've got to be careful because it's, it's a story. You don't know whether it's factual. Um, but we need to see what coaches the players like best. Now, Spides, we've been involved in people <laughs> a long time and I cannot remember at any stage in, in my career... <laughs> Where as a player, I've been asked what I thought of a potential coach coming in.
2: No, 100% Maury, mate. Look, The players are what, picking the national team coach? Come on, guys, spare me, will we? Just get on board. The governing body needs to pick who they think will be the best manager for this current crop of players and for the future of the game. Full stop. And the women uh, players, I shouldn't call them women, I should just say players, they just need to accept it. And if they don't accept it, it is their right to actually say, no, I don't want to play for my national team. That's it.
3: Yeah, yeah. But like I said, Simon, there has been an undercurrent of this um, kind of talk around about the Matildas for, for some time and that player, player power. Um, but governance, uh, FFA, they, na- they need to have their own strategy. It needs to align with what they believe is the future for the, the Matildas. And the players just fall into line.
0: Indeed, I don't think you can get into a situation where you have uh, the employees choosing the identity of their own boss. I tell you, I might have chosen one or two different ones down the years, that's for sure. Uh, let's head overseas for our next segments. London calling, London calling. Let's talk a wee about Barcelona and Leo Messi's comments in particular on social media regarding the Luis Suarez departure to Atletico Madrid. And incidentally, in case you missed it, Suarez on debut scored two and assisted another, Kelsa surprise. Uh, Messi said Suarez deserved a send-off better than he got, but that nothing surprises me anymore at Barcelona. It sounds to me, boys, as though Leo is still not a happy camper at Camp Nou.
2: No, he's not happy, is he? Uh, but... It didn't seem to worry him too much on the field. They won comfortably 4-0. But as for Suarez, look, he's right. Uh, He probably deserved a much better farewell than what he got. But in football, we've seen that many, many times. And Suarez, as a player, has gone to an opportunity uh, that he thinks suits him. And obviously, clearly, it does. And under Simeone, he's going to be a real threat. And I think Atletico is going to be a real threat this year.
0: Is there any oh, way back referred for, for Messi
1: at Barca?
2: Look, it—he's it, still obviously
3: angling, isn't he? Um, mate, when he swings, he doesn't miss. <laughs> 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 he swings, he doesn't, he doesn't miss. Uh, but you know, for Suarez again, he's a football player. He wants to play. He wants to be loved. Strikers are a little bit special that way in, in, in terms of that that feeling. Um, great business by Atletico. I think it was it was a six million spines?
2: Yeah. Oh, it was yeah, something like that, yeah.
3: What yeah. like six million. Great bit of business, but uh, Leo Messi, definitely an unhappy camper.
0: Indeed. Uh, two shock results over the weekend in Europe. First of all, Bayern Munich's 32-match unbeaten run was ended by Hoffenheim in some style as well by four goals to one. Uh, that was their first defeat since December 2019 against Borussia Mönchengladbach. And Manchester City, Yes.
2: Uh, ah, in the we'll, Premier League, we'll talk about Bayern first, and then we'll, uh, we'll we'll just handball a Man City one over to you. <laughs>
0: okay, and, well, you talk about Bayern first then.
2: What 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 I think is happening at the moment, Simon, uh, is there's a lot of matches in Europe. There's yeah. there's games happening every Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday, and you know what? These guys are very good players, like great players. But even the toll on these players is is ridiculous at the moment, and I think you're going to get a very A lot of inconsistent matches this year where the players just can't back up. And I think that's clearly happened. You know, Bayern's come off a Super Cup win against Seville, which was a cracking game that went into extra time.
0: So it's a bit of a a Champions League stroke Super Cup hangover for for Bayern Munich. Are you offering up the same excuse for Man City? And off to you we go,
2: Simon. And off (laughs) to you we go. What do you think? So tell us, Simon, what do you think happened to Man City on the weekend?
0: Uh, I'll give you a very succinct answer. They were crap. Um, And defensively in particular, there remains huge issues for me. I mean, the game against Leicester, and and Leicester have beaten City three or four times in the last few years. And there's no secret to the way they play against City. Uh, They exploit the high defensive line with the pace of Jamie Vardy, who just seems to have a field day every time he plays against Manchester City. And I wonder sometimes whether there 's an obstinacy about Pep Guardiola, Far be it from me, Maury, to question one of the great uh, coaches or managers of world football, but defensively, City still look very, very threadbare. Yes, they've added Nathan Arke. They're about to add Ruben Diaz for 65000000 million. I'm not sure he's City's first-choice centre-back, incidentally. I think they wanted Koulibaly. But there's still issues in the full-back areas as well. Mendy and Walker are great going forward. But defensively, they make mistakes. And both of them coughed up penalties at the weekend. I am
3: going to say, it was three penalties, Simon. Um, and, and, And again... We know how Leicester play. We know uh, Vardy, the way that he plays in terms of how hard he works getting in between uh, central defenders and and fullbacks. Three penalties to lose 5-2 at home. uh, And for Man City to be um, a title hope this season, you you can't be losing 5-2 at home, can you?
2: Guys, how much do you think this no crowd thing is really playing a part? Because if you have a look, there's a lot of away teams winning matches around the world as well.
0: Well, the, the, the old joke at uh, Man City, of course, is that we got no fans, so that shouldn't make a
2: difference,
0: <laughs> but, uh, which is completely... <laughs> hey, but of boy, people, right? you've,
3: been, boy, you've been a player as well, so you know how important when you play at home in particular that, that support can be um, and, and how it can be that 12th man and, and and but sometimes it also puts added pressure if you're at a big club and you're playing at home and after 15 20 minutes you've not scored a goal that can also work against certain players that maybe don't have that tough mentality and uh, so that that part's not there in the game at the moment so some players may be playing with a little bit more freedom certainly teams playing away from home are maybe not countering that 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 pressure, that atmosphere that maybe they would normally uh, experience. So, very interesting. But you touch on away teams going, performing, doing well. Um, fans definitely play a major part. And we need to see our fans back in the stadium sooner rather than later.
0: I want to ask you a question, boys, about that specifically. From your own playing days, you both played for massive clubs. a you for Rangers, Spider U for AC Milan. When the team was struggling and the fans started to get a bit restless. Did that way through to the
3: (laughs) It's it's horrible, mate. For 12 months, 12, 15 months at Rangers, um, mate, I was struggling and I I would play... I would would thought I played a a good match and I'd play one straight pass. And when you've got 50,000 fans, uh, and they're not necessarily booing, but it's a... uh, Oh, (laughs) mate, mate, it's... But right. it sounds like a boom, mate. It's certainly not great for the confidence, uh, mate. It's so so tough, and the big clubs, uh, mate, they want to be entertained, Simon. They like if you've not scored after fifteen or twenty minutes, mate, they're on they're on your case big time, uh, mate. Yeah.
2: Really, really tough. Yeah, and you know what the funny thing is, Maury? Like when you play for these big clubs, like they just everyone expects you to just go out there and win three and four nil. It's yep. incredible. And I always knew at Milan, the longer the game went at 0 0, it was like, oh, shit, there's a counter attack coming here. There's a counter attack coming here somewhere, you know, because the crowd's actually urging you on to go score. And then all of a sudden, you're pushing numbers forward that you shouldn't be pushing, and the counter attack's wide open. So I think it plays a massive part. I really do. And I think you can see it worldwide at the moment with what's happened with no crowds that the away team almost has an advantage.
0: Let me ask you about uh, the other big talking points uh, that really had an impact over the weekend. And that's this new handball rule, which uh, oh, caused a of oh, consternation. Uh, particularly two decisions, one in the Crystal Palace-Everton game for the handball yeah. given against Joel Ward, which in my opinion is just absolutely ludicrous. And and similarly, the handball given know. against Eric Dyer in the Spurs-Newcastle game
3: that earned Newcastle... Uh, and even the United. You know. Um, it's like I'm I'm still not not very very clear with the the whole handball rule, Simon. Because the Man United uh, penalty, there was a handball uh, incident because it didn't directly lead to the goal. There was a chance for the ball to be cleared, and then it wasn't cleared, and then end up uh, being called back. For me, the VAR, I really can't get my head around the the, the handball situation. We've seen some some poor decisions. Um, And I just think we're still guessing week in, week out, although we'll get the referees official come on and and, and say what should happen. But the thing is, these things consistently aren't happening. So coaches are like, well, hang on, we've been presented to at the start of the season about what the rules are going to be. But we're we're now getting different outcomes come weekend. What's happening?
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's ludicrous. And the managers are going to start blowing up uh, even more Uh, I think we're going to get protests after the matches. They're not even going to do the uh, press conferences anymore because they're just going to get themselves into trouble.
3: Yeah, yeah, fine, fine. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The other
0: thing uh, that's causing a bit of consternation in the UK, at the moment, in England in particular, is uh, this spike in uh, COVID cases. Uh, It's starting to affect clubs with their... Their preparations. David Moyes, in particular, the West Ham manager, had to go into self-isolation after testing positive ahead of the Carabao Cup tie between West Ham and Hull City, along with uh, two of his players, Issa Diop and, and Josh Cullen. Uh, Moyes had to coach from home against uh, Wolves this weekend. This really is sort of well, unprecedented. Four though,
3: Simon. Yeah, poor well, poor
1: Maybe they're
0: better <laughs> off without them. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Oh, dear. Um, interesting stuff um in terms of uh, asia uh, the champions league guys in asia thrown into disarray al halal thrown out uh for failing to name the required number of players which uh, is 13 um, one or two clubs have, have already been been thrown out of the competition asc st- saying they're still looking at a final date of of the 19th 90- of December. Uh, so they're also looking at, at centralized hubs for, for next year's competition as well, which suggests that uh, they're not too confident that uh, even next year this coronavirus is, is going to be under control. This is going to be mighty difficult, isn't it, for them to, to get this competition finished by December?
2: Yeah, now very I, difficult.
0: Even on a budget, quality is non negotiable.
3: I think so. I think so. Um, we, we've touched on it a couple of times. I just can't see how, um, with all the uncertainty, um, how it can be played out. I, I think uh, also was it was it Mitch Duke Simon that, that scored the, yep. the the goal that um, got his team through to the round of sixteen? But I, I just don't know and, and can't see how this season's um, ACL can be completed.
0: Well, I, I'll tell you an interesting one is is the J League clubs in particular going to be a very hard hit because they've got to complete their domestic fixtures at oh, the same time as as their their Champions League fixtures, which uh, at the moment looks like it could be played in a hub in yeah. Qatar. I, I reckon all the groups eventually will be uh, completed in I, Qatar, the whole competition yeah. in Qatar. So they would need a squad there for the Champions League and a squad at home uh, for the j which is almost impossible, isn't it? And that makes a mockery in some ways of the competition.
2: Well, the only well, thing about it's, it's, the J League is Simon, there's no relegation this year. That's true. That's true.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like a little bit. Uh, we've seen the Champions League uh, when it completed just the last season, uh, Simon. But domestic season was finished, wasn't it? Um, so it didn't, you know, it, it didn't distract them. all. but to, to have two different squads uh, potentially again, I don't, I don't see how that is possible. Um, and certainly some some real challenges in terms of scheduling. Um, Not only now, but maybe moving forward as well.
0: Tough times for football the world over. Final one in this segment. What a great story this is. Kazumura, at 53 years of age and 210 days, played in the J-League for Yokohama against Kawasaki Frontale, breaking the oldest player record by eight years He's now played in five different decades. This is incredible. I'm still hanging on to hope that I could make it as a professional because I'm younger than Kazu.
2: Yeah, you're but still. You're you keep forgetting to ham- tell everyone about your hamstring that come off the bone <laughs> sun when you went for a gallop. <laughs>
3: yeah,
2: but is there not a rule,
3: Spides, Is there not a rule? So I mean, that's a tremendous story at 53 years of age still on. I mean, Coming up, in 45, That was a lot to go right now. <laughs> is, is play game, right? but they in, in Japan. Um, then unless a player retires themselves, the, the, the club don't retire the player, or there, there's some kind of rule. Um, Simon, have you heard anything about that? Think, the, the player. I think.
0: It's, yeah, I, th- I think it's more to do with the traditional sort of hierarchy of Japanese society, because yeah. Kazu, who of course is nicknamed King Kazu, is so revered in Japan. I don't think Yokohama, the club with whom he's, he's been with since 2005, I don't think they are ever going to tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, yeah. it's time yeah. to hang the boots up. I think it's up to him. And he said he wants to play until he's 60, Spider. Can you imagine that?
2: All right, man. I, I would understand if he was a goalkeeper and he didn't have to run. Yeah.
3: <laughs> but... what, what about a young central defender, mate? I'd be loving that. Eh? Oh. Having a,
2: having, oh, there'd be no a, runs in chicken. behind there, would there?
3: Oh, mate, just like, he's dropping deep, that's it. (laughs) Can I ask you, boys, again,
0: a question regarding your own playing careers? And obviously, father time catches up with with everybody. But is there a specific point when you're in a game where you think, you know what, I'm done? Or is is it a gradual decline? I'm fascinated by that as a person, of course, who wasn't a professional footballer.
3: No, nah, Simon, for a goalkeeper, Spider will give you his story, it might and it will be different to, to a player as such. But but my two years in the premiership, uh, and I was I was only thirty-two uh, when I went to the premiership. But um if I was not one and I struggled with injuries in the premiership, if I wasn't a hundred percent, I knew that I was gonna be exposed because you're up you're up against pace, you're up against power. Even the the so called um uh, lesser names. Could embarrass you, um, but you know, you physically you you know when you're not you're not capable at that level, um, and it's it's not a nice feeling. It's not a nice feeling, but you you do know you do know whether or not you can cut the mustard at the level, and um, there comes a time. Some people hang on, some players hang on a little bit longer, uh, but certainly for me, you know, returning to Australia uh, was um, at a good age. It was. It was something that, that I was comfortable with, um, but to stay long in the premiership, I, I, I couldn't have done it physically. Uh, and the way that the game had gone, uh, it was already t- um, speed beyond what I had.
2: Yeah, mine was similar, Maury. i i ended up with an I ended up with an injury, um, and I, I just couldn't train a hundred percent anymore. I had to change the way I was getting up and stuff like that. And you could actually see when you're playing at that level that I actually couldn't compete anymore with. With my peers, so the guys that I was competing with to play ahead of them, I just couldn't compete anymore. So I actually wasn't enjoying training because I couldn't train at 100 percent anymore, and I just knew it was time. So, yeah, yeah. like you said, you know, you you dropped back and played in the A League, which you know, no disrespect, but it's a big drop back from where you were playing. I could have actually done the same, but I, I was sort of over the training. I, I was yeah. I was done with it because it was it was. Uh, it was too hard to actually adapt to everything. So, it was just time. And you knew it was time. And I'm glad I finished on my terms instead of actually being told, oh, uh, mate, 100%. that's it. Yeah, 100% yeah
0: I, did, I did the same, boys. Uh, torn hamstring at 52. <laughs> uh, Abbotsford juniors. I lasted five minutes of my second comeback game. So, <laughs> I think that's God's nice way day, of saying I'm too old.
3: <laughs> I still, I'm not I still good. still, in. for the life of me, have no idea how you've done your hamstring, mate. I thought you had to have speed to, to, to do a <laughs> hamstring. Injury in the first place. It,
0: it was trying to stretch a leg that hadn't been stretched that far in probably about 30 years. That's what did it.
2: Yeah. Well, move your feet, son.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that was the tricky bit. Okay, let's move on to our final segment today. And we've got another great guest in Footballers' Lives.
1: Footballers Live.
0: Well, our special guest today began his career in the early with the great Melbourne Knights team, where he was a part of two NSL championship winning squads. From there, he moved overseas to Salernitana in Italy, then Baden in Switzerland, and briefly Stoke City in England. His longest spell, though, was with Manchester City, for whom he made over 150 appearances in a six-year stay before joining Leicester in 2004. Three years later, he came home to round out his professional career with Brisbane Roar. He won 23 caps in a decade-long international career with the Socceroos and was known, I think it's safe to say, for his tough tackling and rather uncompromising style. It's a big uh, podcast welcome well, Danny to Danny T. How
1: are you, <laughs> oh, uh, Good guy, yeah, Excellent.
0: Great to see you, mate. I, I imagine you might have watched the Manchester City-Leicester game overnight. <laughs> what, what did you make of all that?
1: Yeah, it was, uh, yeah, it was disappointing. Uh, yeah, you think a uh, Man City side with the quality they got shouldn't have conceded five goals. But uh, yeah, it's just uh, the times of football at the moment with all the COVID and no fans in the stadium. I think it could be a little bit, little bit different for the players as well. <clears throat> Yeah. And Danny, what,
0: what are you up to these days in terms of uh, your
1: life? What what work
0: do we find you doing?
1: Um, well, at the moment, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm residing up on the Gold Coast, loving it up here, uh, enjoying uh, yeah, the beautiful weather and the lifestyle. And uh, yeah, just uh, helping out my wife with her little education business and also coaching my uh, young fellas uh, under 14 side up at Logan Lightning.
2: It's just a quick one, mate. For the people that can't see, I love the shirt you got on. Red Bull shirt. You should have just put Jaeger on the top of it, and it'd be Jaeger Red Bull. And mate, keep the keep the sponsors happy, mate. Let me let me tell you, we we done the old fashioned get together last night. Vinny Grella's popped into town, and uh, we give it a good tilt. And that uh, shirt just brought memories of what I shouldn't be doing late at night.
1: <laughs> uh, that's, that's okay. We're old and retired. We can do those things now.
0: Thanks <laughs> for. <laughs> Fingers on your siree there spider that's great um D- daddy let's go back to the beginning of your uh, pro career and that wonderful melbourne knights team in the mid-90s some team you had i just want to reel off some of the names but duke Horvat, horvath buljabasic math marisic kovacevic chavinsky Spiteri, biskic fasto de amici that's some great memories and some great players as well in that era
1: yeah, and one boy you missed out as well was Joe Siminich as well. He came through uh, Melbourne yeah. Knights as well. So, yeah, the, the, the amount of talent we had uh, back in that old uh, Melbourne Knights days was, was phenomenal. And, uh, yeah, like I said, we had a, a good bunch of boys who were, were young, hungry and, and desperate to make a career for themselves. So, that was a great stepping stone for a lot of us boys at the time in the Old NSL.
0: Is that team underrated in terms of the way that it's remembered or, or not remembered in the modern era?
1: Um, you'd think so. Uh, I think the old NSL has been brushed uh, well and truly under the carpet for for a long time. But, but yeah, again, the game moves forward, players come and go and, uh, and again, eras and, and, and squads, uh, you know, come and go as well. Again, like the the, the Sydney United, uh, the Sydney FC at, at the moment. Again, they're they're doing very well, and they'll be a team that will get recognised for a little bit. But then, after about ten fifteen years time, they'll be forgotten about as well. And the next best thing will come along, and, and that will be talked about. So, but that's that's uh, such a footballer's career, and that's uh, how it works.
0: Your uh, your initial steps overseas, uh, Danny. He, Rather tentative it's probably safe to say. Just 11 games for Salernitana. He didn't feature at all, according to the official records for Baden. A lone spell at Stoke. Um, w- was it a tough learning school? I know in particular that the fans at Salernitana were um, quite demanding. Let's say.
1: Uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it was definitely a, a very big uh, learning curve uh, for me uh, coming from from Melbourne Knights, where the supporters were quite intimidating and, uh, you know, mainly the other teams uh, back in Melbourne. But, uh, but, yeah, making that move after the Olympics over to, to Italy uh, to a Serie B squad, uh, Salernitana. yeah, it was, a, a, you know, a bit of a culture shock even though I've got Italian background and stuff. I was still classed as a foreigner and, yeah, it was, uh, yeah, our supporters at the time, we weren't travelling so well. So, when they turn up to your training ground, you know, 3,000 strong abusing you and, uh, you know, making it hard for you to train. And uh, yeah, it was, it was tough, uh, especially because I've never experienced anything like that. I know one game we came back and uh, they lined the road um, coming back from Fodger, coming back to our our club back in Salerno, and uh, they blocked the road and all the ultras come on the bus and uh, abused every single player and the president of the club. So that's how much uh, control I had had of the, the team and the club as well. So, again it was uh, amazing and a different experience that uh, you know most players don't come across.
3: T so touching on that because obviously my our weekly coffees are not happening now cuz I'm in Scotland but we've had many chats um, over the years but your time at Salernitana you you touched on that that incident where the supporters actually come onto to the bus um and and gave every single spray or so gave a spray to every single player but they got to you and, 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 and you were okay, you, you told me that time.
1: Yeah, well, they did. They sort of come up to me and sort of said, hey, Kangaroo," which is like kangaroo in Italian sort of way, and said, hey, you're okay. You're putting in the effort and trying to work hard. And they show that every time i got a couple of minutes here and there at the time that I gave it my all and, and really dug in. So I think they appreciated. They had that fight behind me, but... But all the rest of the players, uh, yeah, I think they thought they were on a bit of a holiday and a bit of a jog up. So, I was safe, you know, at that at that first stage. Yeah, when when they did come on the bus, so again, it was nervous, nerve wracking for me. But yeah, end of the day, uh, they gave me a bit of a bit of a pardon, which was which was good.
0: I don't think anybody, Danny, could accuse you of, of lacking in, in effort or fight. Um, you came to England, i say, first of all, with Stoke, but you, you got sort of your big break, I suppose, when signing for Manchester City in 1998, a fee of £300,000. Uh, City, obviously, a, a club that was a lot different then to the one it is uh, now. And you had Danny Allsop there as well uh, as another Australian. Um, did, did that help you settle and, and how did that move come about?
1: Um, well, basically, when I got the loan move out of uh, out of uh, basically uh, Italy, uh, it was actually Kevin Muskett 's agent. I spoke to, to Muskett at the time; he was over at Crystal Palace, and his agent actually got me the loan move over to Stoke City. And I was at Stoke City for for about I think about seven eight months, and uh, and played out the remaining season there, and, and had a had a really really good uh, seven eight months there. And uh, yeah, we played Man City a couple of times. I had a few people come out and my me play, and they were looking for a left-sided player and that's how basically the move came about. I went back on the off season and they contacted uh, me agent at the time and uh, yeah, ended up making the move to city. So again, it was, uh, I didn't really know a lot about city. Um, I sort of researched when I knew they um, showed a bit of interest and, and realized, you know, the the size of the club and the supporter base I had. So it was, yeah, again, even though that was a step backwards for me at the time, because it went back into the old second division because they got relegated that season. I thought, you know what, it's going to be a great opportunity for me. To maybe make some inroads and start getting some first team football at a at a at a big club.
2: Yeah, and and that's the thing, Teets. Uh, you've shown by the way you've played your whole career that you weren't scared to go to places that you thought were great opportunities. And that's that's a desire I think a lot of players these days. I know. Again, we've spoken about this before when I've been up at the Gold Coast about the young players and their desire to actually roll the sleeves up and work to actually get something. And another one, you're a perfect example of it. And, mate, let me tell you, Melbourne Knights are well and truly recognised in the sporting history of Australian football.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, they should be. But, but again, yeah, like we've spoken before, Spider and Maury. And, uh, yeah, again, I think uh, it has to come down to, the, the player but also the the uh the person who's representing the player as well yeah you, you know you can't just look at dollar signs you know you've got to look and see where's the best place for this kid if he's leaving australia and going overseas for sure
3: yeah, yeah it's a play you're you're obviously coaching uh you're coaching your son harley um uh, mate what what are you seeing what are you seeing on the on the ground level in terms of uh, the positives in terms of uh, the talent of players or and potentially um, maybe the, the, the education at, of what, what is required to be a professional footballer? What are you seeing at the ground level?
1: If, if I was to be brutally honest, it's, it's disappointing. Um, now that I'm involved in coaching uh, younger kids and I have been for a number of years now and just seeing the progress and, and just being in that environment where everyone's turning around and saying, oh, why aren't we producing uh, better kids? Again, it all comes down to grassroots football. Um, yeah, every, all these clubs and coaches, they've got all their licences, but they haven't had the experience of, of telling the kids the right information, you know, every training session, every game, what it takes to become a, a top-level footballer as well. The pressure of, um, you know, you've got to perform every week or else you're going to spend a little bit of time on the bench. We're all very nice and giving everyone that time on the field We're not grading the boys at club football um, right as well just because you've been there and your parent might be in the committee and his son has to be in a certain side. Again, you need to always, again, you need to build a pyramid and that has to come in junior football. If you've got two or three weaker kids in your team, at the end of the season, you need to move those on and find three stronger boys and keep on developing that side. So when they get to an age of 17, 18, that side be very complete and be a very strong bunch of boys, you know. So I see that week in and week out at the moment and the way – and the way they're coaching the boys, again, they're coaching the boys one way, which is curriculum-based. But then when it comes to games, that goes out the window. All I see now is long balls, you know, kicking the ball as far as you can, not trying to play, not trying to create that that smartness, that awareness of playing out of the back. And again, you need to do that. You know, you need to do that. And we're not doing that, you know, week in and week out. And that's why we're not creating top footballers.
0: Danny, that's a strength of character you needed Uh, a lot with Manchester City if I can take you back to those days in the third division uh, it was known as League 2 in those days or or Division 2 in 98-99 I remember that season very very well as a fan because I went to most of those games uh, places that Manchester City didn't normally play at and it lifted the level of, of the opposition to play against the big club and to try and beat the big club how difficult was that as a player for that club at that time? Because the expectations were that City shouldn't be in that league. You were expected to win every single game. And it was a damn tough year, wasn't it?
1: Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, you know, I was, I'm always a very competitive footballer. But when we went to some of these, um, some of these grounds and the fields were, were mud patches and, you know, you got six foot five, you know, big broods trying to boot the hell out of you week in and week out. And then vice versa. When they came to our ground and they played on a immaculate surface, a nice big stadium, they they, they stepped up their game immensely. And we had to basically work so hard that season to to get ourselves out. I I, I think if we didn't get out first season, I think it could have been a different story for for, for the progress of, of the club. You know, even to, so, again, that's how how hard and how the pressure was on us uh, week in week out. And again, the boys who didn't dig in that year, mate. Yeah, the city supporters used to be the hell out of a lot of boys who didn't show that desire and hunger to compete every week, you know, so that's why I always, um, you know, was always in good stead because I'd get sent off, fight, I'd punch, I'd kick and uh, there was a Manchester supporter as well, you know, they wanted to dig in and, and fight every weekend, you know, and uh, I was the same sort of player as, as what the supporters were.
0: I know, because I I was one of those fans, uh, Danny, who was probably probably giving the players (laughs) a beauty at that that particular moment. Um, You you had lots of highs and and lots of lows with City. Uh, You won the Player of the Year Award, uh, got promoted into the Premier League, that famous day at Blackburn, where really uh, Blackburn should have beaten City. I think they hit the the woodwork four times and City ended up winning by four goals to one. You, You played in Manchester derbies. You marked David Beckham. Um, and you also let's let's be uh, delicate about this. You had a couple of disciplinary issues as well during your time at Main Road. I remember watching you a game against Blackburn Rovers. You came off the bench, and I think you've been on the pitch. Was it three or four minutes? And I think you two-footed David Thompson in the groin <laughs> and got a red card. Do you, do you remember some? Pick out some of the highs and lows for us, Danny, of your time at City.
1: Ah, again, that was, a, again, I was just privileged that, you know, that, that I played at that time at City and the rollercoaster ride at that club was, was unbelievable. You know, by, by being promoted two years on the bounce, then getting relegated, then back up again, you know, uh, getting play the season, getting sent off most years, um, had a good <laughs> bunch of boys where we could go and have a drink after a game and have a bit of a laugh as well. Again, I wouldn't change it, you know, for... Again, I know the money is crazy now at City and all that, but I wouldn't change my time. Uh, when I played, I think I had the best of both worlds done okay financially, but then also the team camaraderie and, and the boys we had at the club and, and the players I played with as well. It was unbelievable, you know, and the, and the coaches that we had as well. It was it was just a great experience. Um, yeah, like I said, there's, there's that many, many, you know, highs and lows. But, but again, uh, yeah, David Thompson, yeah, I actually bumped into him a few years ago and and apologized to him, you know. Even though I apologized, you know, after the game to him, but, but yeah, he still still remembered that. And uh, we had a bit of a laugh about it a few years ago when they came to Adelaide and had that little indoor tournament against uh, Liverpool United and a few of those boys. So, but, but yeah, it was it was a you know a great time in my career, and uh, thoroughly enjoyed it. Um, I'm, I'm surprised
3: been... it took
2: you three or four minutes, Pete, to top him. <laughs> oh,
3: no. Tietz, do you do you, do you miss anything? I mean, we've all been players before, and we've all enjoyed the you know the dressing room and the banter. Uh, obviously, playing in front of full stadiums and that. Is there anything that, that you that you really miss, or you you're quite content with with where you are now?
1: No, no, I'm very content. I think um, I think initially when you do sort of finish your playing career, yeah, yeah, you wish you know that you probably you know maybe would have done a couple of things different. Uh, that environment always to be around the players is always something that I really thoroughly enjoyed, you know, whether it was with club football, international duties. Um, I just loved being around the boys and, and having a bit of a joke and a laugh. But but I think, you know, as you get a little bit older, I think you really, really get over over sort of, you know, the the intensity and the work rate and, you know, the, the effort that you had to put in to, to make it at that level. You know, I think I'm, I'm fully content of what I've done. And, uh, you know, like I said, I can look back now finally and say, you know what, yeah, I was a little bit mad at times, but, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world.
3: And physically, too. physically, I know that um, you, you did end up having a, a couple of injuries. I think I remember a, a game against Turkey where Mark Schwarzer uh, came out and, and went to punch the ball, and I think he caught your jaw instead. <laughs> but um, over 35s, Musgrave, uh, Craig Moore plays a, a little bit long, too long a ball. Um, a still enthusiastic, Danny Tiago? Talk us through what happened there. I was, I felt terrible. Uh, yeah,
1: basically, it was your fault, Maury. You've just overdid
3: <laughs> a long one. Your legs, your
1: legs, uh, legs, and again, it's just my stupid enthusiasm that, that tried to get me um, toe on the end of it as the keeper come out and caught me very, very sn- sweet and snapped every ligament and had microfractures uh, 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 and uh, having uh, a total. Your on the- worst injury. What was that, mate? Was that your worst injury? That was my worst injury, mate. Yeah, yeah, oh, that was my worst And that's, and that's <laughs> after I've finished playing football uh, yeah, for a fair few years. So, so I've got to thank you for that. But, but again, they, oh. can, they, can, they, they can replace me these, these days. So when I'm about 60, you no know, replace and we'll go in and I'll be right for another few years. Maya,
3: we still have lucky
2: luck, you had the golf buggy to get down to the local to have a drink, you two. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Actually, yeah, we, we actually did have a beer after
0: we the had game a because
1: he was a little short. Yeah, oh. and we ended up uh we actually had one at the clubhouse and then we uh Maury actually and uh yeah uh, our late friend Mark actually drove us back to, to Moss. We had a couple of beers here. Morey contacted um, Damien Voss, uh, who was uh, who was an Aussie boy who was over at Sunderland, but working here at Hope Island, and uh, yeah, got straight into him and uh, ended up uh, sorting me out quite quickly. So, so yeah, it was uh, yeah fun times. But I wasn't much, I wasn't doing much during the day, so leg up for a few months
3: wasn't too bad. Sorry, sorry, mate. Sorry, mate.
0: <laughs> Danny, um, tell- sorry,
3: go on.
2: Tell, tell us, mate, you've played at some great stadiums and you've played at some dungeons, mate. Tell, tell us the best stadium you've played at and tell us the biggest dungeon you've been to.
1: Ah, uh, mate, that's, that's... Yeah, the dungeons, there was a fair few back in the old section. <laughs> um, I think uh, we played at Grimsby. I think the only good thing I'm about... played Grimsby there. ...was probably the fish and chips probably after the game. I played <laughs> there.
2: What a dungeon. <laughs> it,
1: was, it was pretty dodgy but... But again, yeah, I, I think, yeah, we've, we've, I think, you know, between uh, playing in the Premier League against, uh, you know, in some of those venues were unbelievable. You know, Anfield, United, you know, Newcastle. Again, all those Premier League sides, um, you know, the, the, the grounds were, were, were crazy. You know, they, you know the, the supporter base was good. But I think even with the national side, you know, we've played um, in some good venues as well. You know, when we've been to, to South America as well. And, and you know how crazy the South Americans are. You know, the, the atmosphere they created... Yeah, oh, mate. I, I don't think you know the hairs on the back of your neck would stand up when we play uh, in South America because they're just so, so mad. So I think those um, those stadiums over there were, were unbelievable as well. So yeah, there was yeah there was there was so many um, stadiums that we played in that again would, that that hair on the back of your neck would stand up and uh, yeah, you never forget those things. I, I was there the
0: at that, that particular day, uh, Danny, where you drew one all. I know Spencer Pryor. Uh, scored, who's uh, another ex-City boy who's now uh, living in Australia. Um, I've got a little story to tell you. you. You probably don't know this. Well, you definitely don't know this. But I, uh, I actually was reporting for ITV in, in the season o 0102 when City were in the championship under Kevin Keegan, who I know wasn't your favourite uh, manager to play under, and he certainly wasn't my favourite manager to deal with as a journalist either. A uh, game against Watford, and you actually won the Man of the Match award, and it was my job to give you the big Jeroboam of champagne, if you remember, that Nationwide uh, dished out for the player of the match. And such was the poor relationship between ITV and Manchester City at the time, that Keegan refused to allow you to come and accept that uh, Man of the Match award. So I gave that Jeroboam of champagne to a mate of mine. Because it was in my possession, and yep. he kept it for ten years and drunk it the day that City won the title in two thousand and twelve. <laughs> so, I'm sure you'd be you'd be glad to hear that, that it, it went to a good home and, and finally got drunk. Um, I want to ask you a quick question before we move on to some uh, Twitter questions, Danny, about the best play you played with, and I'm not just talking about obviously Socceroos, Mark Viduka, uh, Harry Kewell, etc., but. You know, at City, you play with the likes of Paolo, Wonchop, George Weyer, Andre Kinchelskis, Nicholas Anelka, the late Mark Vivian Foye. Do you have a favourite or two from, from your playing days that you thought, wow, he's a bit special?
1: Um, yeah, the, the, the boys you mentioned, they were quality as well. We had Sean Wright Phillips as well that came through as a younger boy. Um, Ali Bernabia, as well, the Algerian international, as well. He was phenomenal. Old Burke of each other time. And then and then we had, yeah, we had, uh, you know, Sean Goda. Again, I was pretty privileged that we had, again, as much as we had a lot of turnover in those six years that I was there, I got to, to, to play with so many top players. Um, Goalkeeper wise, we had David James, oh, Nicky Weaver at the start, David James, David Seaman, um, Peter Schmeichel came in as well. Um, yeah. So we had we had that many top boys that, that, that were, you know, world-class that, that, again, I, I think it was, you know, a privilege for, for me to, to be involved at, at a club like that, that, that and I got to, to experience that. So, and, again, and then when we opened up the city of Manchester as well, when we played against Barcelona, you know, that, that Barcelona side had Ronaldinho, Overmars, you know, Puyol, Javi, the, the whole lot, you know. So to actually, you know, get on the on the field and play against a, a side like that um, in my career was something very special as well. And um, yeah, like I said, it's yeah. When you look back, um, and I think uh, all the boys that, that, that played at, at that level, it's it's like a dream basically. Now that you look back, you you think, oh, did I actually did I do all that? You know, did I, did I play against all those? Yeah, you know, I, I get bagged a fair bit, but um, yeah, a lot of people don't realise. Uh, the, the amount of uh, you know the talented boys that I played with and uh, Aye, you're
3: uh, you know. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. But, but again, but again, a lot of people, yeah, a lot of people forget about that, and all they see is um, you know, the the leg break and little bald headed noise.
0: Well, I tell you what, Man City fans uh, still remember you fondly for that one hundred percent. Uh, effort and never say die attitude Uh, and I I certainly remember your time uh, very fondly at at Main Road uh, maybe apart from that tackle by David Thompson which I know led to a fallout between you and Kevin Keegan anyway uh, we are running short of of time a little bit uh, Danny we could go on for hours talking about your career we've got a couple of Twitter questions Um, I want to start with this one from Carl Burney who wins our question of the week congratulations Carl $100 Outback meal voucher coming your way Manchester City is a vastly different club nowadays, says Carl. What has remained the same or recognizable from your time?
1: Is there anything? Um, probably when they wear a blue top and that's about it. Not even the <laughs> <laughs> so that? again it's it's vastly changed, yeah. The amount of money and the and the players and the, and the way the club's gone again. It's 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 huge. It's 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 a world brand now. It's yeah, a leading in the uh, you know in in the world game. So again, it's it's changed. Uh, yeah, uh, unrecognisable basically. So so yeah, it would be nice to go back there one day. I know I've got a couple of ex-teammates who are still involved We've got the academy level over there. So so hopefully in the near future, and we can uh, fly about Europe again. Uh, I'd like to get over there and uh, and check it out.
0: Okay Arto Harkonnen asks, "Do you feel your reputation as a tough defender was exaggerated, and do you think it preceded you a bit unfairly in games
1: um, Not really, I think it was all pretty plain and simple that you know I was very competitive, and uh, that was the edge uh, that I had of my game that." Every time I played against, um, you know, teams, they knew that, uh, you know, the player that I was marking always knew in the back of his uh, head that, you know, I could t- take him out at any time sort of thing and uh, or else I could get sent off at any time as well. So, again, that, that did follow me around and that was part and parcel of the way I played at, at, in those years. You know, you can't do it this t- at this day and age. But okay, that,
0: and the last, throw... last couple, uh, <laughs> we've got one from uh, Ben Archer. What's the funniest chant or sledge you heard in your career? And one from Keats Treats, NSL or A-League, which do you prefer?
1: Um, sledges and all of that, mate. I got, uh oh, mate, I don't know how many times I got abused from the sidelines uh, when we played <laughs> opposition sides. It was, <laughs> mate, it was actually, that, that was, they're actually too rude to even say, you know, because I, I got pelters, you know. Yeah. Uh, again, when I sort of had longish sort of hair, called gypo, like gypsy a fair bit, you know, and... Uh, a few swear words thrown in. And i uh, to um, say between A-League and NSL, it's a tough one. The the NSL was semi-pro at the time. Um, you know, yeah, we did have some great players coming through. The game did evolve. The A-League, yeah, they, they're trying to trying to push it in the right direction. It's just unfortunate that um, after the, the, the boys won the Asian Cup, we should have really progressed and kicked on uh, the A-League from then, but hasn't. Sort of stopped and started. So, again, I, I, you know, I'd still like, and I don't want to bag the A League, um, you know, as well. But I'd really like to see the A League really push on to another level. But, but i yeah, I'm a little bit disappointed uh, the way and the way everything's going in general. I know finances is, is a massive part of the game, and we just don't have it. But, but yeah, hopefully, yeah, you know, I'd like to say, yeah, I'd like to see a bright future for, for kids here in Australia and, and our national side. But. I think um, I think every parent with a young kid now has to look at their kids individually and work with them individually and try and get them to a level to eventually try and get them overseas at an early age. And, again, that's disappointing because we want to try and create a great brand and a great league here in Australia. But at the moment, I can't see a lot of future moving forward, to be honest. Okay. Um, anything to add, boys, before, uh, before we finish?
2: Nah, Teets, absolute pleasure, mate. Uh, great to hear these stories and great to reminisce of the times. I just want to know why you Victorians have all got white line fever. <laughs>
1: <laughs> mate, you know what? It's because there was a lot of Italian Croatian dads that used to beat us when we were young. And so we had to be <laughs> pretty <laughs> I think that, that, was our, um, that yeah, that's our attitude, you know, I think the Victorian boys.
2: Brilliant.
0: Danny... Thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, be uh, good to see you around the traps when we're able to travel once again. And uh, thanks for sharing some wonderful memories and stories with us on our podcast today. Cheers, mate. Cheers, Tom. Cheers, Thank thanks. you very much.
1: Cheers. Thank you, man. And uh, all the best for over there in and hopefully we'll see you soon, guys. You. Cheers, Take care. Cheers,
0: bud. Cheers,
1: Cheers
0: mate. Yeah. Cheers. And that is- us for another week thanks to all of you who downloaded us over 17 in total of our various episodes so far and we're now well over 1500 followers on twitter as well don't forget to subs- uh, don't forget to subscribe to our youtube channel and we'll see you same time same place next week until then bye for now